Welcome to Spectrum. Today we have another special edition of Spectrum. We're going to talk with three people of very different backgrounds and perspectives about race, fear, hate, and the possibilities for hope in this country. We'll talk with a black mother who is the mother of a teenage son. She also is a former prosecutor and a current trial judge in Cleveland, Ohio. We then will speak with a Muslim immigrant to America and a father of four. And finally, a gay Nepalese American. Let's begin with Judge Gail Williams Byers. She's a mother of a 16-year-old mixed-race son. She shares her perspective of being a mother of a young man of color, her fears and apprehensions. She also talks about her relationship with the law as a former assistant prosecutor in urban Cuyahoga County and now as a judge of an extremely diverse court. The judge says that we have common threads of fear and hate running through our society and that we have not, as a country, shed discriminatory behavior or racist attitudes. She also says that, unfortunately, some lives are valued less than others in today's America. I agree. I think there are some common threads to, to get to a similar point. It's just that the, the threads that are common are derived from different perspectives, but they all lead to the same end point, which, as you've aptly described, is fear and hate. And it's either fear and hate based upon race, fear and hate based upon religious preference, fear and hate based upon sexual preference. It can even be fear and hate. I'll even go as far as to say fear and hate based upon socioeconomic differences and disparities. You know, remember that, you know, there are, there's still that thread, if, if you can even look and see, there, there are those who are still at the bottom rungs of society without regard to where who they are, their race or their religious beliefs or even their sexual beliefs. They're at the bottom rungs of society and there are clear differences in how they are treated and how they perceive themselves to be treated by those who are situated in the higher rungs of society who sometimes share the same ethnic background as they do, but are not respected and appreciated as such. I can be seen as, you know, just a poor black person from the ghetto and be treated poorly while someone who has more access to more money and more um, more items is treated with far more respect. Conversely, someone who lives with far less and perhaps Appalachia and doesn't have access to much of anything can be treated as, you know, what we commonly or frequently have termed poor white trash versus someone else who has so much more than they do. And that creates a disparity. And that does continue to feed that ideal of fear and hate. So those threads are common um, among all of those groups of people, but they lead to the same common endpoint. It's a terrible, unfortunate 
reality that we've reached in our society where we are being forced. It's not because we desire to, but we're being forced to have a very candid conversation about all of these isms, I call them, that have really helped to shape who we have become as a nation. The interesting patchwork in my family is that my husband is biracial. And so by extension, my son is exposed to you know, the varying backgrounds that and ethnicities that our families collectively bring to bear. And my mother-in-law is of Irish descent. My father-in-law was African-American. And so my husband has lived his life sort of battling that divide, that racial divide. I'm not certain if I ever told you the stories that my mother-in-law would share about, you know, having Molotov cocktails thrown into her vehicle when my husband and my sister-in-law were just small children, because at the time she lived in a neighborhood on the east side of Cleveland where it was not acceptable for blacks to live there. And so even though she was a white woman of Irish descent, and but her children were half black, they were not welcome there. And she had to physically leave her home and sleep in her vehicle because Molotov cocktails were thrown into her home and it was no longer safe to stay there. This was the reality of my husband's upbringing in Cleveland. And, and I would love to tell you that as we fast forward to 2016, that we have shed those um, discriminatory behaviors and those racist attitudes that drove my mother-in-law from her home to her vehicle to turn her vehicle into a bedroom for the safety of her children. But quite frankly, the truth is that we haven't. We've become more covert about it, but we've not really shed them. In fact, even in my experience as the first black woman elected to the position that I hold now, I recall distinctly in 2012, sitting in a meeting in a a common room, actually the jury room, next to my court. And in that meeting was every council member that um, held a elected office in our city, as well as the chief of police, um, who still serves at, in that post to this very date. And it was a public meeting about an issue that had um, that was important for the court to educate not only council but the community about. And in 2012, in that meeting, the chief of police, who is a white male, referenced the fact that although there was a disagreement between the, the court's view and interpretation of a particular law and his view, that he, quote, didn't get along with the judge and that there was no secret to that, but he wasn't, quote, there to lynch the judge. And so a lynching reference to a black woman in 2012 is shocking and it's absolutely unnerving. But and from the perspective that this comes from law enforcement in this day and age where tensions are so, so tenuous, it 
continues to feed at least the belief and the idea that, yeah, there are some lives that matter less than others, that are less valued than others, no matter what level you believe you ascend to professionally or otherwise. And so in that moment, I felt like I was no I wasn't much different than my mother-in-law all those many years ago who was driven from her home with her babies in tow to preserve their lives and safety. If indeed the head of the law enforcement division in this very community believes it's okay to openly reference the African-American judge with any reference to lynching, given the atrocities that that experience brought to bear on this country. As a black mother of a teenage son, Judge Gale shares the cautionary conversation she has with him. I, as a mother, as a black mother, have been forced to have conversations with my son that my parents never had, never believed they would have to have with myself or with anyone for that matter. And I say this because my son is 16, so he just just received his temporary driving permit. So he just got his temps. And that means he's now embarking on a new phase in his life, that driving while black phase. And I've reminded him so many times that it does not matter how fair your skin is, It does not matter what your name is. It does not matter who your mom is. When you encounter certain elements of society, and right now, especially law enforcement, you are seen first and foremost, you are first seen as a black boy. And right now, that doesn't have a lot of value. And so I have instructed my son with one rule only. And my rule for him is no matter what happens, no matter what is transpiring, no matter what is taking place, I need for him to live to tell the story. I need for him to act and respond in a way so that he lives to tell me what happened because I can't talk to a grave and we can sort out anything and we can get through anything if he can just live to tell me what happened. And that is a very tough conversation to have, but it's a needed conversation. It's a real conversation and it's a necessary conversation to have is be respectful. Yes, we've had many, many, many conversations about constitutional rights and what the Constitution means and how fortunate we are to live in a democratic society. But quite frankly, all of that becomes rhetoric in the reality of the circumstance when what I really need him to do is just live to get home to tell me what happened and we'll deal with the fallout later. Just get home alive. I need you to live to tell the story. 
Judge Gale says we're stealing innocence and a sense of discovery from black children just to keep them alive. Not only are we robbing and taking away the innocence of our young people by the requirement of having these conversations way too soon and much earlier than we could ever imagine, but also consider that we're also stealing the discovery of, of life from them. I mean, a lot of these experiences that we have, be it with our friends or in certain circumstances, well, see, we raise our children and in raising them, we provide them certain sets of life tools, I like to think of them. We fill their toolboxes with morals, with values, with certain rules to go by and certain things to look out for. And we expect that as we're filling their toolboxes along the way, that they'll call upon those tools from time to time and they'll use them at the appropriate times. And so we can celebrate the fact that they go back to the toolbox. And so they use that tool of advocacy. They either advocate for themselves or they advocate for someone else or they stand up for their rights or they see someone in school being bullied. And so they find that that is an offense to them. And so they stand up to the bully or stand up on behalf of someone else. So they're using these tools and they come home and they announce these things to us. And we celebrate the fact that we are so proud of them because we didn't have to tell them to do it. It's the tool we put in their toolbox somewhere along the way that they had the presence of mind and the willingness to reach back in the box and to use it at the appropriate time. That's what makes us proud as parents is we know that we're filling it up because there's eventually going to be the time when our job of putting tools in the box is all done. We call that adulthood and that they'll reach adulthood and we would hope that at that point, that whatever tools we've placed in the box, that that is enough, that it is sufficient to get them through their lifetime for the most part. And that they may pick up some more along the way, but the important ones we've given them. What we've done in this process and what we've, we see happening is that we haven't even given our babies the chance to discover life and experiences and we're putting tools in their boxes a lot earlier than they would have ever needed them before we're advancing them a lot quicker than we had we should ever expect them to and yes in the process we're robbing them of experiences of innocence of all of these fantastic wonders that we had the joy of having because we experienced them on our time, on our terms, and when they came along, they just sort of came along naturally and were not really thrust or forced upon us. Not so much for our kids. We're sort of moving them along swiftly because we understand and we're seeing around this corner that if I don't put this tool in your toolbox now, that you may not have a later that you may not have a tomorrow or you my kid may not have a 16th birthday. They may not have a 17th birthday or my gosh, a, a 15th birthday. And so I have to have these conversations a lot earlier. I have to tell them about these potential landmines that they may fall upon and they may not even understand fully 
why I'm arming them so soon. They may not fully appreciate it. But what I need them to do is I got to keep sending the message. I got to keep reinforcing this tool because I know that I can't change the color of their skin. I can't change the gender that they're born with. I can't change the dynamics of society. So what's the best that I can do as a parent? I can't be with them 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So I have to arm them so that they can protect themselves at the times that I can't be with them. I wholeheartedly agree. But that not only are we robbing them, we are speeding up their experience and we are taking away an innocence that they will never have the chance to experience. And that is grossly unfair. And it, you know, you have these thoughts because think of it, you, there was a time when if your child said, hey, I want to go to Bobby's birthday party that's going to be at, you know, his mom's house, you never really give it a second thought. Sure, ride your bike, go to the party, you be, always be respectful, you know, treat, treat their home like you would treat your home. You know, these are basic rules. Again, tools. You put in a toolbox. You expect that they'll rely upon those and that they'll act and respond accordingly. And the perhaps unsettling thing is there are times when those babies will rely on every single tool you've given them and even that's not enough. That's the frightening part is that even when they rely on every tool you've given them and even that's not enough that's where you have the bubble up of the anger when you have parents that say wait a minute you know my kid isn't a born felon or even if they were you know the, the thing that they did at that moment was that really something that required taking their life for it is there no rational reason to exercise restraint in any of these situations? Shifting away from her role as mother, Judge Gale, as a former prosecutor, describes the gulf that she sees between the police officers and the communities they serve. Her descriptions are powerful. I am a former prosecutor, so I certainly appreciate, I celebrate, I understand the role, the importance, and the need for law enforcement in a civilized society. And this is not to say do away with law enforcement. I think one of the best tools, speaking of tools, that we can use in a society that we have right now, especially when tensions are so high, and understanding has been thrown to the wayside because I promise you, not one side understands the other any better. There is the biggest gulf in the middle and conversations are not candid. There's no real discussion about hurt feelings, about how feelings have become hurt, about the long-standing history of mis and maltreatment, about how the relationships, this isn't about a single episode 
of breakdown between law enforcement and the communities they're sworn to protect and serve. This is about at least the perception of systemic mis and maltreatment that has been permitted to take place over an extended period of time where entire groups of folk have felt ignored and that the value of their life to society is less than that of a pet or a farm animal. And I believe that there is a general sentiment that by and large, those who serve us in blue do so honorably. And they do so each day with a desire to return to their families and to wake up the next day and to try it all over again. And that it is the minority and not the majority who may have made mistakes or missteps in the performance of those duties. But the bigger issue here is how do you heal the gulf that's in the middle? And you can't do it by sidestepping the conversation or by saying, well, you know, really you should be happy because this is a infrequent incident. You guys do more harm by, you know, hurting each other than the police would ever do hurting you. There has to be the willingness to have a candid conversation about how we get to this point in society, lest we sit back and watch it all just go asunder. We're holding a stick of dynamite literally in our hands. And I promise you the stick has been lit and is prepared to blow up. We have to have and be willing to have a conversation about how do we effectively police communities by bringing unity in the community. See, officers have to be willing to get out of cruisers and actually get to know the communities that they protect and serve. I believe that that's one of the most effective tools you can ever use. It's more effective than any weapon you'll ever carry. Learning the names of the people that you protect and serve. You engender respect. You build relationships. You build bridges. It opens lines of communication. It breaks down barriers. And it has this wonderful thing that it does. It works like an eraser. And all of a sudden, race doesn't matter. Religion doesn't matter. Sexual orientation doesn't matter. Because the goals are common. And when you can understand your goals are common, none of those other things that divided us actually matter anymore. But right now, there are no bridges. There is no coming together. There's pure division. And yes, the divisions are just like this introduction. The threads are common and they're all flowing from, yes, different points, but they're going to the same endpoint, which is, is fear and is hate. And we can't cure fear and hate with more division, more divisive rhetoric. We have got to 
secure the gulf that now exists between the sides and say, let's find our, our goals are common. We got to find the middle. We got to find the middle. And if you are willing to get out the cruiser and others are willing to come off the corner and somebody's willing, you guys are willing to meet in the middle, try shaking a hand instead of pulling a taser. Try grilling a hot dog and having a meet and greet and actually getting to know each other. We encourage people to get to know their neighbors, but we don't encourage officers to get to know their communities and we're not encouraging communities to get to know their officers. These are important relationships. We encourage elected officials to get to know each other so that they can work together better. Well, at its base level, we need communities working together. We need folks locking arms. After all, John Legend said it best. You can have no community without unity. You can't even spell the word without unity. You would be amazed at the type of information that law enforcement might be benefited by receiving if the lines of communication were open, if the relationships were better if there was an absolute concerted effort to build bridges as opposed to working on barriers. Judge Gale sees a disproportionate number of blacks before her as defendants. She says that she lives in a diverse community that's about 54% white and 35% African-American, yet the majority of people who come before her in court are black. Is there a suggestion that the only people that don't follow rules are the ones that look like me. Are you suggesting that in a community as rich with diversity as this one, where blacks are clearly outnumbered, that the only people that know how to follow the rules by and large is everybody other than black folk? Because that's pretty startling. And so when it comes to the conversation about do you feel like you are unfairly targeted? Do you feel that there is you know, a little more that that when it comes to driving while black, that that may be happening here as much as it happens in any town USA? First, I'll say I don't think that this community is exempt because I know what I see regularly. Consider the fact that if you are black, you believe this, if you're black and you are even suspected of committing a crime, just suspected of doing anything wrong, that the wheels of justice roll really swiftly for you. They're frequently severe, it's certainly swift, and it's certain. You can count on that. If, however, you are a law enforcement officer, and if you also have perhaps the dual benefit of being a non-minority, then the perception is that the wheels are far more deliberate. They roll a lot slower. There's a requirement that there be much more investigating on the front end 
that there's more information seeking and more determinations, more stones are overturned on the front end before charges are filed, before investigations are complete, certainly before anyone's ever indicted. And meanwhile, there are scores and scores and scores of black men that are filling up prisons, in many instances to line the pockets of those who have privatized them without a second guess, without a question, without a pause because of how swift those wheels roll for them. And so there is at least the perception that yeah, there's justice and then there's just us, but that we're not talking about the same system. We're telling people that it's the same system, but we're not really talking about the same system. Judge Gale concludes that it is a necessity that we have a meaningful conversation about race in America if we're going to stop the downward spiral of violence. Because we can talk policy until the sun goes down, but we have to be prepared to have the rubber meet the road when it comes to really addressing race issues in America, or else we are fooling ourselves if we really believe we're going to overcome. We are going to continue to sing nothing more than the chorus to We Shall Overcome because we will never truly sing the verses to that song. We won't get there because we're fooling ourselves and we are placating to whoever will listen. It's like putting a Band-Aid on a severed arm. We've never truly addressed the real issue, the real damage, the real harm, the real hurt. All we're doing is just putting a Band-Aid there and hoping the Band-Aid will cure a severed arm. It won't work. To continue our discussion of fear and hate and racism in America, we talked with a rather recent Muslim immigrant to this country. He and his family have faced blatant bigotry and incidents of harassment just for being Muslims. Yet he loves America despite the racism his family confronts. Even so, he has asked that we not use his name and that we distort his voice because he and his family fear possible retribution for his remarks. I feel pretty comfortable with what I'm doing, um, living my dream. I mean, coming from Pakistan, I left my parents there, left my family, everything to come here. I just, it's been like six months since I settled here. Although I have lived in the U.S. for almost 10 years. My life. I studied here. I, that's where I gained a lot of my understandings and everything. And then now my family is growing up here, my kids, and this is what they go through. What is the future that we're looking at? I've always wanted to be in a place where I could live freely with my kind of ideas and raise a family and give them the facilities that I may not have had. I feel I've succeeded in doing that and bringing them here. I remember the time we were leaving. There was a big bomb blast near our house. We live near the diplomatic enclave. Uh, it's a very nice place to live. 
but that was the start of all this war and terror ramifications. And there was this shockwave from the bomb blast. The windows shook and they broke. And I thought it was an earthquake. I couldn't tell. I thought the ceiling had fallen over my head. And that was the first time ever I felt a shockwave from the bomb. I was like, what the hell is that? That's so bad. That's the way it is. Um, and then we were leaving, actually, for the U.S. And I was like, okay, we're out of that place. Um, you name one place that is safe in the Muslim world because of this war. Our immigrant's wife, because she wears a headscarf, is often targeted for abuse. As a result, she has become more and more isolated, but she still believes that she has the freedom to dress the way she wants in this country. Um, a few years ago, my wife walked out um, to catch my son who had run off to the street. Um, somebody, a group of students, college students, they shouted at her and terrorists, go back to where you came from. I came home, I was like, why are you crying? She said, this is what happened. I was like, oh my God. I ran outside and I, I didn't stay quiet. I just went to those students. They were just standing there like a party kind of thing. And I was like, do you call yourself educated? How dare you speak to a woman like that, let alone a Muslim? Is this the way, is this the way you, this is the manners that you've been taught? These are the manners? And... They were like, oh, we didn't do it. This was some passerby. I was like, no matter who did it, you must have been watching there. And you let it happen. I mean, that's all I could say. I didn't report it. And now we're seeing this uptick in hate, hate crimes. Most of them are not even reported. Um, it, is, it is becoming increasingly uncomfortable. People are wondering, like, what do we do? Most of them are, I mean, when I, for example, need to pray, I never tell anyone. I try to hide somewhere in some rooms so that I can pray. Otherwise, I don't know, people, I have to give explanations. So why are you praying or why is that? And just hide it. I mean, don't say anything because what's the point? So hiding my identity is what, the way to go. I mean, it, it's much better than getting, being at the center of attention. My wife has limited her, the places she goes to. So she goes to the grocery store. She goes, takes the kids to the school. And pretty much we live in a neighborhood which is very friendly, so that's not an issue. But when we think about going outside, uh, a little bit away in the, um, from the city, from the town, that's where my wife, for example, um, would feel very worried uh, to go. I've tried to, I mean, I can do as much, uh, but safety is a good thing. It's rather be safe, especially after the latest happenings in Orlando, we were scared to go out as a family. We were, we just stayed inside the house. I knew there are so many nice people. I knew, I mean, how, what, what could go wrong? But at the back of the mind, there was this fear that something's, oh my God, again, a Muslim, how is he even related to us? There are crimes that happen everywhere in the world, I mean, but people don't get, the whole entire communities don't get penalized for that. But in our case, we do, right? Um, and the way they do the media coverage, 24 hours, and now this happened, now that happened, and they just keep using the word Islam and Muslim and radical as a Muslim. I see Islam as Islam. 
and I feel sorry that I have to say this again and again, and all Muslims have to say this again by now. I think a lot of people know that the very word Islam means peace. There is a Muslim is a Muslim. Why do we say radical Muslim or radical Islam? When somebody's radical, he's or she is just radical. Why don't we just call him that? He has mental issues, just like um, somebody can have mental issues in, in, in any other religion or race. But in this case, we, it's very easy for the listeners to understand that when there are other shooters, their religion never comes up. Even if they've shown religious leanings, and even if they've said that their motivation was religious, but we never, rightly so, bring religion in that. Because when we do, this is what happens. It, it, it sort of blames the entire community. And that's not the way to deal with these issues. Uh, that's not the educated way to deal with these issues. When I see this rhetoric, it increasingly reminds me of the hateful and sometimes bigoted atmosphere that you might find in the developing countries where dictators rule. That's exactly what we ran away from. That's exactly what needs to change. And that's why they are not America. And that's why America is so great that we do not believe in these things. But the very people who are saying these things are, in my opinion, taking the spirit of America away. This is not the idea of America. I mean, I think of my family as leaving our homeland, leaving our parents, leaving our relatives for a better life here. Because we thought that this idea of America is far more powerful and beautiful than what we had. If we give in to fear, then aren't we very much against this concept of freedom? Then what is freedom all about? What is America? What does it mean to be American in the first place? We came here as immigrants thinking that this is the land of the free, isn't it? Isn't that what we repeat many times uh, in events and we talk about it? in our daily life, that freedom is the hallmark of being an American. So I asked those people, and I actually, like I said, was suggesting that she not wear it, and she reminded me what it means to be an American. Having the freedom to dress the way you want, um, and to live the way you want, if it's not infringing on anybody else's privacy, if it's not taking away anybody else's freedom, so why is that a problem? And this is what my wife, wife educated me with. And now I could see better that, you know, I was also giving into that fear. And just like those Americans who might have sounded like, you, know, you don't have to wear that. She reminded me that this is what America is all about. This is a sad reality of being Muslim in America. I must say also that it's much better than the life we left behind. No doubt about that. The kind of opportunities here, um, the 95, 98% people are nicer. I still believe in the goodness in humanity. It prevails. But it just takes one nuthead to walk up and make you feel uncomfortable. Tragically, even Muslim children in the United States are not exempt from unwarranted persecution. Our immigrant's child was at school and was chased across the playground by a group of other children. She came home and was extremely quiet. She was acting in a strange manner, and her father asked her what was wrong, and she claimed nothing. I was like, no, something is not okay. This is not you. 
did, uh, did somebody tell you something in the school? She says, what is ISIS? It's like, what? What do you mean? Oh, did somebody said, yeah, kids were running after me and they were calling me ISIS. What is ISIS? Oh, I said, well, oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. They're really bad people, but so you don't have to. Uh, and I had to explain what the ISIS was. Of course, she doesn't watch news. She's eight years old. Um, I said, then what were they doing? They were pointing their fingers at the gun and they were running after me. I was like, this is not acceptable. When I spoke to the teacher, he was very receptive and very understanding. Such an awesome guy. He talked to their, first of all, he talked to all the students one by one. And he identified who had done that and whether that had happened. And then he spoke to their parents. After that, it was much better because he had a talk and there was a lot more understanding. These kinds of incidents leave a lasting mark on children. As far as I know, this was the first incident. You know, she's a very happy child, um, top performer in her class, um, just like a normal everyday, I mean, child anywhere. Um, she's the joy of our life. Um, and when that happened, for the first time I saw her close down because she was trying to come to terms with so I feel that she was trying to wonder what had happened, trying to make sense of that. She was trying to see first, the very fact that she came and asked me, what is ISIS? She must have had an idea that this is something negative, but she doesn't know what it is. So why are they running after me, pointing their fingers as a gun? Was very wrong, um, without outrageous actually, for a child of that age. Um who doesn't even know what's going on in this society. And I'm sure the children or the, her classmates who ran after her, even they don't know. But they must have heard it from somewhere. Parents, uh, friends, TV. To protect himself and his family, our immigrant must constantly explain to everyone that ISIS does not represent all Muslims. So my child, uh, after that, I had to explain to them what this was all about. Even I don't understand what ISIS stands for. What do they really want? Um, when I watch the news, I can't believe that I have to um, justify, I have to tell others that I'm equally disgusted with all this. I mean, the latest bombings that you see all across the Muslim world, Istanbul, uh, in Afghanistan, in Pakistan, in Medina, out of anywhere, the holiest city in Islam, they targeted that. And we're still being asked, are you disgusted or not? What do you think about it? I mean, for God's sake, Muslims are the biggest victims of this terrorism. Um, there's no safe place to live for. Uh, look what the mess they've created out of Iraq and Syria. There are humans dying, their families dying, their children dying. So I don't know what they are. Are they even humans? Uh, what kind of thought process makes them commit these crimes against humanity? He laments his children's loss of innocence. I do feel sorry that the times we might have grown up in, we didn't have to think about these things. Whereas a child who's eight years old has to now 
try to make sense of these things. And I'm, 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 I have a feeling they still don't understand. I mean, of course, what, what can they make sense of this? So as much as I try, I try to shield them from the news, the negative news out there, because they, uh, I don't want them to grow up in an environment thinking that, um, in some ways they have to justify who they are as a child. Um, just because they belong to certain ethnicity or their parents were from a certain religion. They should grow up with a free choice in this land of the free to be able to decide what is right and wrong and choose their religion or whatever they want to do and whatever career they want to adopt. And I try to maintain that innocence as much as I can within my control. So as a start, we, my wife and I, try not to discuss any of these things in front of the kids. Um, provide them with healthy entertainment and education in understanding other cultures. I had a talk with my daughter in telling her that, look, there are bad people out there and there are mostly good people out there. You don't have to judge anyone just because of their color of the skin or their nationality or their religion. Those people who do, you're ignorant and maybe you were, you might have gone through this so that you can be in a position when you grow up to realize the, these things and make the world a better place by playing your role and playing a positive role um, that we are one family as human beings. There is no doubt about that. I have tried to take, in this, take this incident and turn it around in a way that they can build upon this. Obviously, they're going to face life as they grow up. Maybe they were able to face life way earlier than they should have, but that's the reality. That's a fact. I mean, we're living with it now. Our immigrant thinks we need to address our challenges and solve our problems. Despite everything, he's optimistic that we can find solutions. This is the time to build bridges. This is the time to see the humanity in other races, cultures, religions. We, as Americans, have come a long way. Um, we've created a wonderful, wonderful country. Um, you do not find many examples in history where we created a country as great as the United States of America, where anybody can come and live their dream. I still see this as the land of opportunities. It is the land of opportunities in spite of challenges, which every country has. But this is a country which is United States of America because it brought in the whole world in its, in its borders. We have immigrants from Europe, persecuted minorities from other parts of the world, and they came here and they became Americans. Today, we're seeing this rising tide of anti-immigrant sentiment around Europe and America. And I think that's, that's not even in accordance with the ideals of the founding fathers of this country. And I don't think this is going to, this negativity is going to last that long because um, it's just not the very American nature to do that. It sounds <laughs> like those other small countries in the world that, that are ruled by dictators, that don't accept diversity, 
and they are not, that are not great. America is great because it brought in the best minds from the whole world, and still people aspire to come here. Uh, that's the interesting fact, because of these very positive traits. And I don't think we'll, we're going to lose these positive traits anytime soon. Um, what we can do to change the negativity is educate. Um, we have to be patient. We have to persevere. But we have to keep doing what is right and stand up for what is right. History tells us that who stood up, those who stood up for what was, what was right, they prevailed. And I, I truly believe in that. Um, no matter what, goodness always prevails at the end. And in this case too, it shall prevail. Um, being respectful of other human beings is the right thing to do. And that's what's going to live on. Atish Baija is a gay American whose parents are from Nepal. He's a man of color, and he sees racism as an outgrowth of economics and cultural clashes. He thinks we treat some groups of people as less human than others. He also says if we have any hope of solving our race problem, we need to do so from a spiritual level and not a totally intellectual level. Much of the time, because of his race and skin color, Atish feels different from those around him. I'm an embodiment of certain characteristics and definitions by the way my body just physically is. And with those come judgments and stereotypes and um, ideas that just come with my skin color and my background. So I, you, I can't escape it. It's there all the time. It's it's the water I swim in. You know, growing up in California, I didn't really feel it as much. One, because of my spiritual awakening wasn't at a level where I was conscious of it, really. But two, because, it, you know, California was more diverse. So I was surrounded by brown, a lot of brown people. So um, at least I had that going for me. Out here, since I moved out here, I'm much more conscious of my skin color. And I'm much more conscious when I walk into an establishment and I kind of look around and I'm like the only person of color. And it's just something that I register. How I let it affect me depends on the day, where I'm at, where my spiritual center is, but I register it. I, and as the same as if, if I were to, because to compare it, because this is the water I swim in right now, when I go back to California, for example, or I go back to Nepal to visit with my family, I register the fact that I am surrounded by brown people. But the registering of that when I'm surrounded by brown people in California or in Nepal is one of comfort. Not comfort, comfort maybe, but a little bit more being at ease where I feel like it can blend in. When asked about his reaction to the Orlando shootings, Atish quickly expanded his answer to include other groups around the world who have been targeted by violence. Orlando was hard for me because I think of where I'm at like in terms of geography, like where I'm living right now and the community that I see around me, um, where I'm at sort of spiritually and on my spiritual journey 
and how that's influencing things um, and the spiritual work that I need to do for myself. Um, when it comes to, first of all, living in this society, one, but then living in the society as a, and specifically the Amer- Western culture or American society, living as a uh, person of color, and then also living as a person of color who also is gay. You know, I looked at Orlando uh, as another mass shooting that just broke my heart, given the history of mass shootings in this country. I did not see it as an attack on, quote-unquote, my community in the sense of the gay community, if we want to talk about it that way. I saw it as an attack on common human decency and common human the human community I guess and I don't want to put labels on it in the sense of I should feel more outraged or more pained because the victims were gay people of color that doesn't matter to me that to me it's 49 human beings that lost their life And that hurts, and it's going to hurt no matter who it is in terms of the color of their skin or their religion or, or their cultural identity or ethnic identity. That doesn't matter to me. I don't see that. I don't see those categories. But then I have, you know, I have this moment where I'm like, am I being a, a bad gay person <laughs> for not feeling more enraged or more hurt because it was the gay community that was affected by this. And I don't because, you know, it's it's just human beings losing their lives and it's happening all across the world. And so why should we feel more pained when it happens to a certain group of people and less pain when it happens to another group of people? That to me is tapping into various socially constructive divisive elements that we as a human society have created. And I would argue, and this is my just my belief, but mainly a Western, the Western culture has created that just really frustrates me, pisses me off, angers me, frustrates me that we can't get past these artifices, these facades, these, these illusionary categories that determine our level of empathy and compassion because Orlando happened, but so did Baghdad, so did, I can't even remember, Bangladesh, the, the ongoing refugee crisis in, in Syria that's spilling over into Europe. And we don't see that much coverage in mass media, in the mainstream media in this country a lot, thanks to, you know, social media and, and Facebook and things like that. I see more of that. Al Jazeera Plus, those sorts of social videos on the subject really resonate, I mean, hit home with me, and, and I see those images, and, and I see all of this suffering going on all over the world, and, you know, some suffering gets more attention or more empathy from people than others, and that really just, quite frankly, breaks my heart. That is my own personal perspective from where I am at. Um, obviously, if you know people um, or knew people in Orlando, that 
is going to resonate with you more because of your personal connection. I think I'm talking more in the abstract as when we don't have personal connections to certain violent events. When the connection is abstracted in a way, then therefore this hierarchy of feeling seems to play in where if there is a terrorist attack in Paris, people on Facebook put filters on their profile images with the Paris French, French flag um, and uh, take to social media to express their sympathy and condolences and all those sorts of feelings and prayers, thoughts and prayers, thoughts and prayers. And then when the worst uh, bombing or su- you know, suicide bombing in, uh, in, in recent years happens in Baghdad that kills 200-some people in a busy shopping center, you don't see those filters. You don't see the Facebook postings from people saying thoughts and prayers for with the Iraqi people who have been living in an absolute hellhole probably for the past 15 years at least where there are young people who do not know a reality outside of war in their country. And we don't, as Americans, express our thoughts and prayers. And that really is just a bunch of hypocritical bullshit to me. Atish believes that we, in Western culture, treat certain groups of people as being worth less than other groups, and he asserts that we really have not confronted our racial issues. Western culture operates with a set of assumptions, philosophical assumptions, that makes certain groups of people less than. And so because it does that, it is easier to dismiss lives of people or the loss of life of people who are in that other category. And that other category is closely tied in with the intersections of class and race. But that other category in and of itself is created by the set of assumptions that Western culture has that therefore categorizes people with certain features as one group and certain features as the other group, and then also divides people through class, so the, their sort of material wealth or their ability to have certain things, and you're judged on that. So it's about those two things. And if you do not fit into the preferred groups, you are consciously and unconsciously dismissed or rendered other, or rendered invisible, or rendered less than. Your life is not as valued. You are not seen as a full human being with certain human rights and privileges. If you come from, if you are viewed to be from a certain group, your rights and privileges are different than people from another group. The poor are targeted. Non-whites are targeted. And when I say targeted, I mean targeted by the system. I don't mean targeted by, indivi- targeted by individuals as well. But there are laws and policies that are, and institutions that, are put in, that have been put in place to keep the poor 
down to keep people of color down in order to benefit the elites. If we have any possibility of solving our problems with fear and hate, Atish says we have to change our approach and change our way of thinking. We need to approach these issues more spiritually. We have talked about race, but we have not really talked about race. We talk about it on a certain superficial level, and that's it. And we don't really, really talk about the depth of this thing called race or racism or white supremacy. We don't talk about how it is ingrained in everything in this country at an institutional level because our country was founded. I mean, our country was created off, the, off of the genocide of the Native Americans and on the backs of African Americans, of black slaves. That is our history. This country was founded by Europeans coming over to this land, killing a bunch of people, and enslaving a bunch of people. That's it. That is it. That is our history. That is the founding of our country. Yes, we can talk about the lofty ideals that our founding fathers had laid forth, but those ideals still come from a white supremacist, a Eurocentric perspective, because they sure as hell didn't mean it when they were killing Native Americans and they were enslaving black people. We have to acknowledge as a country that this is our history and this is our past. And until we're able to acknowledge that truth with open eyes, that, that set of factors, that context with open eyes, and acknowledge it for what it is and not wrap ourselves in the mythology of the American dream and the founding fathers and the Constitution and these higher ideals from the Age of Enlightenment. Until we're able to do that in a real way, we'll make steps, it'll feel okay, but we'll just continue the cycle of it. Feels okay, bubbles up. Feels okay, bubbles up. Feels okay, bubbles up. The undercurrent of pain and trauma and suffering will always be there. Although our attention has been focused on a recent series of violent incidents, Atish thinks that these are just the current versions of a long series of historical events. He fears our interest in solving the issues will just disappear. It'll disappear. It will disappear. Because we talk about a series of incidents. Where the hell are we going to start? I mean, if you want to talk about a series of incidents, where do you want to start with a series of incidents? Like, where do you start that, that measure? Like, let's be real. Like, where do you start it? Because you, <laughs> how far back do you want to go? Seriously, how far back do you want to go if you want to talk about a series of incidents? And will it get us talking about things? No, because, because that series, depending on where you start it, I can go back pretty far, hundreds of years, if we really are thinking about it, hundreds of years, a series of, so this idea of a series of incidents, yes, in the modern context, in the most recent context, there are several incidents that have definitely ignited, fueled uh, a fire that's been raging, right? It's sort of like the fire has been always been burning and things will happen that will 
like lighter fluid on a fire, spark it up again, and then it'll die. But the fire never dies. It never is ignited. And so it'll happen, it, it will happen like this again. We will, after the election, and this, I mean, I don't want to sound, I, I'm hoping I'm being pessimistic and, and I'm being cynical and this is not the, tr- this is not the truth, and, but it will, it will smolder again later on. Something else will happen um, to distract us uh, or we'll make some progress where we feel like we've, we've done something. A bandage will be put on the wound um, and it, politicians will make certain overtures that feel to some group of the, uh, some p- part of the populace enough to sort of placate them for a while. Um, and then we'll sort of go back to normal. I think with social media and sort of this context that we live in, the, the time period between flare-ups will probably be less. Um, or pa- perhaps we'll see con- longer continued flare-ups before things sort of go. That's sort of the pessimistic side. The optimist in me says these flare-ups, this prolonged sort of flare-up and this prolonged visibility in our consciousness might spark some real reform. But we have to think about radical, transformative uh, measures. So reform is maybe even the wrong word because reform is just sort of Band-Aid to me. Uh, Reform, it can be argued, is just a code word um, for half measures that really actually can be twisted to um, further support and grow the monster that is on the underlying problems in this country under the guise, but under the guise of being fixed, it actually makes things worse. But it makes it feel like it's fixed to most of the populace because we are um, sheeple. We are medicated, drugged out, uh, distracted people, beaten down, downtrodden people who are so divided by things that we cannot come together in solidarity and unity with each other to fix our problems. Yes, I mean, I get angry and frustrated too. Um, And I get sad and depressed. And I get overwhelmed and frustrated. And um, it's heavy stuff, right? It's heavy, heavy stuff because, you know, we... We are not what's that we're not human beings having a spiritual experience. We're spiritual beings having a human experience. And the more human experiences we have, or the more we see it as human experiences, the less we tap into the spiritual side. And all of this just feels heavy and disconnecting and separate and divisive and dividing and um, lonely and isolating and sad and scary. And that is sort of what we're living in. People, People thinking they're human beings trying to have a spiritual experience as opposed to spiritual beings having human experience. And if we look at it the other way as human as spiritual beings having a human experience, 
I think we can, f- we can tap into the better sides of our nature, or the the po- the light side of our nature. Um, you know, it always strikes me when disaster strikes in this country. We have some sort of natural disaster. The way people come together in this country to help each other out. And I get emotional just thinking about it because, and I get emotional just thinking about it because that is, that is our nature to help each other out and support each other. And it's such a beautiful, wonderful thing. And you are so overwhelmed by it. And we are meant, I believe, to operate on that level all the time. And so it's just a matter of our perspective um, in, in paying attention and being in the moment and all those, those things, right, those, those, those teachings that we get from religion and spirituality when we're talking about religion and spirituality at its best, um, and we know what that feels like when we connect with a fellow human being. We're having a spiritual moment right now, this conversation. This is amazing. And, I, and despite the fact that we're talking about something so heavy and so depressing in some ways, all the world's problems, and we think about it in a critical way, in an intellectual level, it's a beautiful moment we're having. This, I know we're connecting because we're talking about something that is so soul, I mean, it's just this thing that's happening between us as connection that fills our soul. You know, and when you think about the intellectual too, the intellectual is the mind, the mind, the human experience. You know, our feelings, empathy and compassion, connection, those are spiritual things. And so... Feelings, I guess, could be in some ways spiritual things. And so thinking about things intellectually is, is fine, but then you got to think about things spiritually too. Here's the thing, right? We talk about all these problems. We're talking about it on an intellectual level, and we're analyzing it on an intellectual level. So we're really talking about it in human terms, in human human experience. What would our conversation would be like, or what could we do if we talked and thought about these things on a spiritual level? How would we feel if we operated from that place, where um, there are these problems in the world that we recognize, but then our ways of solving them come from a spiritual place. What would that look like? How would we do that? What would it be? I would imagine it would probably be a lot like when we have those natural disasters. We just sort of come together and solve the problem and help each other out and don't think about this person has more than I have and blah, blah, blah. We just sort of instinctually do what we need to do to help our fellow man. We've heard three different views on fear, hate, and racism in America. And we've heard three different possible solutions from a judge, an immigrant, and a gay man of color. What are your opinions? 
What are your solutions? We'd love to hear them from you. Send me your thoughts in an email to hodson at ohio.edu. That's H-O-D-S-O-N at ohio.edu. Or share them on our Facebook page at Spectrum Podcast. We want to thank you for listening to this special edition of Spectrum. This podcast is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our audio engineer. I'm your host, Tom Hudson. For more information about Spectrum, go to woub.org.